Well, let me, let me review real quick what we went through last Sunday and uh, continuing on in our journey in, the, uh, in Mark's gospel. And uh, we'll take a, a, a running start there and get us into chapter 13 today. But last Sunday, we looked at uh, how to uh, in give to God what belongs to God, and, and we learned what that looked like in Mark chapter 12. We saw two groups, the Pharisees and Herodians, coming together uh, from opposite spectrums, and uh, they were coming after Jesus because they, the only thing they had in common was their hatred for Jesus. And so these two opposite groups, uh, kind of enemies of each other, actually, were coming together to try to take care of Jesus. And the thing is that they knew He taught the way of God. They even complimented Him about that. But they wouldn't submit to the will of God. And there's a lot of people in, in these days that, that we find them like that. They know about God. They know what God can do. And all, but you know, they're not interested in following God as, uh, as, uh, as Jesus talks about. And their question that they had for uh, uh, Jesus, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And uh, so Jesus asked for a denarius, give, you know, give, anybody have one of those? And uh, he was able to get one, and he says, whose portrait is this on here, and whose, whose inscription is on there? And they had to answer Caesar's, and that's when he gave the answer, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And from there, we looked at what then is our responsibility to the government. What is our responsibility? And we looked at, consider Romans 13 and 1 Timothy chapter 2, as well as Titus chapter 3, and getting these answers of what our responsibility to the government is. It's to obey, it's to pay, it's to pray, and it's to stay. We obey because it's established by God. Government is established by God, and we do that. Now, question comes up, okay, well, what if they're forcing us to, to uh, um, pay out of pocket right there once a year for abortion or something like that? Something that goes against what we know God doesn't want to happen. Well, then, okay, then you, pull, you, you do a Daniel, and you, you respectfully... Uh, uh, disobey in that way because you obey God in that, and uh, and so the thing is is that sometimes uh, there's a lot of a lot of Christians who disobey government just because of certain things and, and and little whatever. But if it's scriptural, yes, then you do so. You you need to obey God rather than man. But obeying obeying government because it's established by God, we we have the responsibility to pay because it's an obligation, like it or not, it's an obligation towards our government, and in, and we need to pray for uh, those in government as well too, and it's for our benefit that we would live in peace, and it's also too for their salvation because they uh, they need to know Christ. They need, and could you imagine? <laughs> it's hard to imagine, but could you imagine? that uh, our government, our state government, if people would come to know Christ, if our governor would, would come to know Christ as Savior and Lord, if the government officials in, in Oregon would all just a, suddenly, a revival happen and, and all, the, all those people come to know Christ and live for Him. Could you imagine what that would look like here? Now, again, maybe far-fetched, and I'm way down the line or something like that, and you're thinking, no, that's not going to happen someplace, and it's going to get really cold before that happens. But I think that if you, th if you think about that, that's why we pray. That's why we pray. Not, not that, okay, we can benefit from a Christian-led uh, state. No, we pray because those people need Christ. <laughs> they need a Savior. And so why should they uh, not get our prayers in that way? We should also be staying. Don't, don't, don't pull out from everything. Don't go hide in I understand you want to move to Idaho or Texas or something like that. I got it. I, I, I understand that stuff. But really, 
stay in it. Stay in the fight. God needs you to be that messenger, be that person that can do it. He wants to use you in a lot of ways. So our responsibility to the government are those things. And, and then we looked at our responsibility to God because then Jesus also gave that answer. The second part of it says, and to give to God what is God's. And so what is our responsibility to God? Well, two things. First, to live. We need to live for Him. We are made in His image and created by Him for His purposes. So we must live for Him. And the reason why is that we owe the one who owns us. God owns us because uh, He paid that price with His Son on the cross. So we need to live for Him. We also need to give. Give to God the things that are God's. And the thing is, as Psalm 24 verse 1 tells us, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So that does not leave a lot out. (laughs) So give to God what is God's. It's pretty much everything, especially your life. And, and your livelihood, who you are, your dreams, your desires, everything else. And we concluded with all that in saying it's time to give ourselves back to Him because we owe the one who owns us. And I trust this last week you were able to put that into practice in some way. Um, things come in your way, and maybe you prayed for uh, those in government uh, this last week in a different way. And maybe you are also, too, looking at ways you might be able to give back to God some way with your life. So that moves us from Mark chapter 12 into Mark 13, and uh, yeah, if you've read that chapter, (laughs) that's a good one. Now, there are a few phrases most parents don't want to hear from their children while driving on long road trips, and maybe the most despised question is right behind me there. Are we there yet? I can remember uh, times any kind, anytime our kids would ask that question on our trips, and we took some pretty long driving trips uh, around, and, and they would ask that question, are we there yet? And my response was always, almost. And it didn't matter if we were like blocks away from the house or we were blocks away from our destination. I would always say, almost, almost. And I'm, I'm probably thinking, too, you might be asking that same question with this sermon series as we continue to mark and journey through Mark. It's been a while. Are we there yet? <laughs> Are we done? Almost. Almost. And maybe today uh, during a service, uh, you might be thinking, is this sermon done yet? Are we there yet? And I'll say, almost. <laughs> almost. Now, the same question can be applied to Christ's return as well. Are we there yet? And I would think God's answer to us has always been almost. Almost. If Jesus came back today, though, the question we need to ask ourselves, would he find us faithful or faithless? Faithful or faithless? The question is not when Jesus will return, but what will we do before he gets here? We come to Mark chapter 13, which contains the longest sermon of Jesus recorded in in, in the Gospel of Mark. In this passage, Jesus preaches about the end times which reminds me of a story about two pastors who were seen standing by the side of the road. They each held up signs that read, The end is near. Turn around before it's too late. The first driver yelled out as he sped by, You guys are religious nutcases. Leave us alone. And from around the curve, they heard screeching tires and a big splash. And the one pastor turned to the other and said, Do you think we should have put just a sign that says, Bridge out instead? But... We need to communicate the end is near, but we also need to communicate so people can understand 
But today we're going to study the end times. And no, I'm not going to set a date for Jesus' return. No, I'm not going to answer all questions about the tribulation or the rapture, so you can just kind of settle in from that. But what we're going to see is what Jesus tells us to think about the last days. And it might actually surprise you. But before we get into that, I, I think we need to be aware of two extremes regarding the end times that we need to avoid. And I trust that you're avoiding them yourself as well. Uh, two extremes to avoid. One is sensationalizing. Sensationalizing. For some, the, the tendency is to obsess about biblical prophecy by trying to fit every news headline and prophetic timeline. They see something on CNN or Fox News, and they go, aha, <laughs> see? And it, okay, yeah, those are signs, possibly, but do you really know exactly when Jesus is coming back? I don't think you do. And Paul cautions Christians, though, against this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. He says, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. So some believers in Thessalonica had stopped working and were just waiting for the return of Christ. And that is the extreme that we need to avoid. Yeah, Jesus is coming back. All right, I'm, I'm ready. And you just sit and you don't do anything. Then there's the other extreme of trivializing. Trivializing. Others don't think about the return of Christ at all, and even they can just kind of roll their eyes at this important doctrine. Because so many years they've been told, Jesus is coming back, Jesus is coming back, Jesus is coming back. You're going, okay, well, I've been told that. When? When? <laughs> Not yet? Okay, almost? Right, okay, I've heard that from my dad when we traveled on, on trips. Second uh, Peter verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 says, First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming, He promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So we need to make sure that we avoid those extremes, uh, definitely. And we also need to have an understanding, and please, please understand uh, these things before we move forward. First of all, there, as I mentioned already, I will not be given a full explanation of all that the Bible teaches on this key doctrine. If you uh, thought about that and looked at that chapter and read it before you got here and said, oh, okay, this is going to be fun, we're going to find out when Jesus is coming back, um, you're going to be disappointed. We'll, be, we'll simply be walking through, though, this chapter, which is the next stop in our journey through Mark's gospel. I encourage you, if you want more on this, to read Daniel chapter 9, verse 12, uh, chapter 9 through chapter 12 for an Old Testament perspective. And you can also look into 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for information about the rapture. And for details about the tribulation and the return of Christ, you could check out the whole entire book of Revelation. Knock yourselves out, because there's a lot of different interpretations that go on there, and I'm not going to be the person standing here and saying, this is what it is, and you need to believe this. That is for you to figure out between you and God, because I don't think that's the important thing. The important thing, like I said before, is that we need to be ready. Are we there yet? Almost. Be ready. Also, too, we got to realize as well, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Jesus is coming back. We don't know for sure when He's coming back, but we're certain that He is. So we need to understand that. And we also, too, need to understand that prophecy is largely 
practical. Prophecy is largely practical. The aim of it is largely practical. While we might want to know the, the when and what questions, Jesus focuses on who we need to be and how we should live in light of his return. Jesus is preparing us to proclaim the gospel in the middle of persecution. And I agree with what one pastor said about prophecy. He said, prophecy is not designed to satisfy our curiosity, but to sanctify our character. So it's not, uh, you know, oh, I knew that was going to happen. It's, it's, we need to look at prophecy and go, okay, what is it in me that I need to get right with God? So I am ready. The question is not when Jesus will return, but what will we do before he gets here? So really, let's focus on being faithful and let God handle the end of the world. All right, does that sound good? <laughs> I think that's how we should operate. Anyway, with that then, Let's look at chapter 13 in verse 1, and we'll see how far I can get without keeping you here too late. And you thinking, are we there yet? Uh, verse 1, as he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Now, this was Tuesday or maybe Wednesday of Jesus' final week and his last visit to the temple. And the temple of, G of Jesus' time was quite magnificent. This was not the original temple built by Solomon but it, it, because it was destroyed by the Babylonians in the 7th century B.C. The temple was built, re rebuilt by Ezra, then desecrated in the 2nd century B.C. by the Seleucids, and then the Maccabees reconstructed it, and then it was greatly expanded by Herod the Great. And we talked about that uh, a Sunday or two ago. The thing was really huge with 40-foot high columns carved from a single stone, and foundation stones that weighed more than 100 tons. And you can still see some of those, uh, those stones today in the area called the Western Wall, or what we more commonly known as the Wailing Wall. The temple reconstruction wasn't completed until 64 AD, just a few years before the, the Romans destroyed it. It's almost kind of like our, our granddaughter, Tenley. She, uh, she's now in the habit of when you build something up with her little blocks, she comes right on over and goes, whack. <laughs> <laughs> knocks it down. Well, this is what was going on here. The temple reconstruction had been completed in 64 AD, and here come the Romans and knocked it down. They destroyed it. But the Jews felt that its size made it a permanent object, as well as the fact that it represented to them God's presence. And it's amazing how the things men create as so permanent can be so short-lived. Anyone who has a structure in their lives, whether it's a, a stone or, or maybe it's an idea or maybe it's an attitude. If it rejects Jesus, God will judge it and he will tear it down. You better believe that. Verse 2, Mark 13. Do you see all these great buildings? It won't be up behind us. Verse 2, um, he said, do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And that's exactly what happened in 70 A.D. when the Roman army destroyed Jerusalem. The destruction of the temple was judgment for rejecting Jesus. And even as the, the same thing happened hundreds of years earlier when God judged the Jewish nation, sending them to Babylon and destroying the temple. So Jesus isn't done showing His disciples the future. As we look at the next verses, verses 3 and 4. So as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, 
When will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? So the idea of the temple being torn down would have been pretty shocking to the disciples. And you, you think about that, and, and, and yeah, they, they would have this question. When is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? And you even have Andrew joining in on those three saying, yeah, let's find out. So four of his men pulled Jesus aside and asked him a two-part question. When will the destruction happen, and what should we look for to know it's going to happen? Because we want to see this. We want to get out of the way if it's going to happen. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, verse 3, it says the disciples' question is more complete here. It says, what will be the sign of your coming? A little more specific in their question. And from their worldview, the setting up of the Messiah's kingdom would happen at the same time of the destruction. They, didn't, they still didn't get the separation between the first and second coming of Jesus, first to save and then to rule. So Jesus sets for them a picture both of when the destruction of the temple would occur, but also far into the distant future to just, just before He returns for the second time. And what we need to understand is that these events are not in chronological order. At times, prophecy can have a dual fulfillment, one in the near future, one in the far future. One person described prophecy like standing on a mountaintop. You can see the other mountains, and they seem so close, one right after another, but in reality, they are many miles between them. So, too, with prophecy, it is the, the high points, and we see, but much time can elapse between the events, events that took so close, uh, that, that, that look so close, but are pretty much far away. And so prophecy is like that. And Jesus warned his followers about the future so that they, they could learn how to live in the present. Many predictions Jesus made in this passage have not yet been fulfilled. He did not, he did not make them so that, the, that, that we would guess when they might, might be fulfilled. Not like filling out the brackets for March Madness or something like that but is to help us to be spiritually alert and prepared at all times as we wait for His return. Again, preparation, being ready. Verses 5 and 6, Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am He, and will deceive many. Don't follow signs, Jesus says, or you will be deceived. And it's still true today. Signs can be misleading because Satan's forces can make it appear as if they have miraculous powers. This will happen in the very end of the age. Revelation chapter 13, verse 14 says, Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. We can be deceived if we aren't careful. This refers to the false prophet that will lead the nations to worship the Antichrist as Lord. But over the years, there have been many that have proclaimed to be the Christ. Jim Jones, uh, David Koresh, to name just a couple because there are too many to list for you today. There have been many people. It's amazing. If you do a Google search, uh, basically on the phrase, people who have claimed to be Christ, you will get a number of people who have. And I did not realize how many there were. And, uh, and there still are people who are living today that are like that. The signs don't matter. Miraculous power doesn't matter because signs can save you and can mislead you. What matters is a relationship with Jesus and the truth of the gospel. 
Paul would later write that even if an angel came and preached a gospel contrary to the one they had received, that angel was really a demon. So don't put a lot of stock in those signs. But now Jesus gives them some general guidelines to look for, not to focus on, but just to be aware of. Verses 7 and 8. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. Now, there have been a number of books (laughs) written about the end times. And some of them have calculated the frequency of of wars and earthquakes and determined that because the frequency is increasing, that that means we we are in the end times. You all remember a book entitled something like 88 Reasons Jesus Will Come in 1988. (laughs) That guy had to revise it to when it didn't happen in 1989. He revised his his book a little bit. Um, It would would certainly be much shorter, though, of a book if you just went ahead and just revised it each year. Uh, 22 reasons for Jesus coming back in 22. (laughs) And keep on going that way. Anyway. And many have, have predicted the end times. And again, you Google it, you get an incredible amount of people who have said, yep, this is the end time, this is what's going to happen. And the latest prediction was uh, in 2021. <laughs> and I can get it. I, I understand that with all the pandemic going on and everything else. But uh, it didn't happen, and we're still here, or we're in trouble. <laughs> we're still here, one of the two. But anyway, people have predicted many, many times over this. But really, a close reading of, this, of the passage here seems to say the opposite here, that false prophets claiming to be Christ are not a sign of the end, that natural disasters and man-made disasters are not a sign of the end, but gives us a taste of what the end will be like. Birth pains tell you that a birth is coming. But like labor, it can start and stop, slow down, speed up. The onset of labor does not tell you when the baby will come, only that it will come. Baby's coming, let's go. And you don't know when it's going to happen, though. Jesus says, watch out, in verse 5, which means to observe carefully or contemplate earnestly the, the people, the politics, the problems that occur around you so that you won't be fooled into panicking, thinking, oh, these earthquakes, what's happening? Oh, the disasters. Step back and go, oh, wait. <laughs> Jesus said something about this. Okay. Looks like we're moving on down the road here of the end times. Got it. Be cautious about saying, this is it. We're in it right now. Here it goes. It's happening. It's going to happen right now. But be bold in your total commitment to have your heart and life ready for Christ's return. Again, that's the key. Be ready. Then he says in verses 9 through 13, you must be on your guard. Now, this is the same word as earlier, but the focus isn't Outward, watch out out there, it's inward. Watch yourselves, be on guard yourselves. He says, you will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. 
So don't worry so much about what is going on in the world around you. Instead, be aware of what is coming at you. Jesus says that religious, political, and even family persecution will occur against followers of Christ. I think the Lord is more concerned about the condition of our character rather than us worrying about the condition of the world. We need to make sure our focus is on where our relationship is with with Jesus. How are you doing there? Don't be so concerned about how the world's doing. You know the world's going to be doing what they're going to be doing. Where are you at with Christ? We focus so much, though, on world events that we can ignore real lives that need the touch of Christ's love right in our own neighborhood. The purpose is so that the gospel will be preached to all nations, one person at a time. And it seems that Jesus isn't so much interested in how we find out about the end times as much as we is about, he is about how we will act when pressed about our faith. When it comes down to the point of, do you really believe what you believe? Are you able to give a good answer? Are you able to move forward? All men will hate you because of me, he says, and that is becoming more and more true as time goes on, isn't it? Christianity has gone from the the foundation of our country to being the enemy of our country, and we are still followers of Christ. Followers of Jesus, and we need to continue so, even though the world sees all that differently. And this shouldn't surprise us, but it should motivate us to be examples of Jesus in a world that is going from darkness to deeper darkness. A light never shines so bright unless it is brought into a darkened room. And Jesus says, it's going to get bad. So buckle up, bear with it. I'll save you in the end. We don't have to be fearful or defensive about our faith because the Holy Spirit will be present to give us the right words to say. So, Next, even though Jesus has said, don't look for signs, he gives them one, actually, to be fulfilled three times. Verses 14 through 19. It says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. Wow. So what is this abomination that causes desolation? Well, this comes from three places in the book of Daniel, chapter 10 and chapter 11 and chapter 12. Essentially, it is pagan idolatry in the temple. Pagan idolatry in the temple. The first time this happened was uh, by Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 B.C. Antiochus sacrificed, you get this, you can probably understand why this is called the abomination that causes desolation. Antiochus sacrificed a pig to the god of Zeus in the temple. This started the Maccabean Wars. <laughs> they were not very happy about all this was going on. The second fulfillment occurred in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and desecrated the temple. The third fulfillment is yet to come. When the Antichrist enters the temple and declares himself to be God. Why is this event so important? Because it signals the enemy's blatant declaration that he is God. 
And there have been a lot of people, like I said, you Google that, you, there are a lot of people who claim to be God. A lot of warped ideas out there about that. Isaiah 14, verse 13 addresses this. It says, you, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Satan, Satan has always wanted to be God. And he has always hated the Jewish people because he knew that's where the Messiah would come from. So it also stands to reason that Satan, through the Antichrist, would target the Jews for special hatred during the last seven years called the Great Tribulation. Jesus refers to it in the next verses, in verses 20 through 23 in Mark chapter 13. It says, If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom He has chosen, He has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. So again, this is both near and far fulfillment. Over a million Jews died from starvation and slaughter after the Romans sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD. But Jesus is also talking about the tribulation where the Antichrist will make peace in the Middle East only to break it halfway through when he will launch an all-out assault against the Jews and anyone who calls on the name of Jesus. So it's going to happen. And even now, but certainly at that time, people will long for the Messiah's coming. You will long for the Messiah's coming. Maybe the church will not be here for that event. <laughs> I hope, as I always said, as I always said, pray for pre and prepare for post. <laughs> and that's how you can deal with that. But certainly there will be many people who will come to the Lord during that time, especially among the Jews. And there are always those who claim to be the Christ. To penetrate the, the, those disguises of these false teachers, we can ask ourselves some questions. Like, have their predictions come true, and do they have to revise them to fit what's already happened? <laughs> or does any teaching utilize a small section of the Bible to neglect the whole? Or does the teaching contradict what the Bible says about God? Big key thing there. Or, or, or are the practices meant to glorify the teacher or Christ? Or, and finally, do the teachings promote hostility toward other Christians? Great questions to ask yourself um, about uh, when we hear people to be, you know, claiming to be the Christ. But there will, be, there will be absolutely no doubt when Jesus returns to the earth. Look in verses 24 through 25 with me. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. <laughs> okay. This speaks of the many natural disasters and events described in Revelation chapter 6 and other places as well. And there have been people led to think this is the day because those events have happened. Or they were happening and say, okay, he must be coming back. We've got to ask ourselves, really, truly, is this according to Scripture, everything else happening? Is this what's going to happen? And we shouldn't get hung up on, is this it? We should be hung up on the fact that, are we ready? Are we ready? Verses 26 through 27 says, At that time, 
Men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and He will send His angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So contrasted with the feeble magic of the false messiahs, Jesus' return will be unmistakable. You will know that Jesus is returning. In Matthew 24, uh, verses 26 and 27, it says, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You will know. And at that time, the angels will gather all those who belong to Jesus, who became Christians during the tribulation, rescuing them from the, from the peril they've been under, like a huge liberation after a war. And Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 through 9, talks about this event. Uh, as Jesus' feet touched the Mount of Olives, He was right there giving this. He turned during this discourse. They were up there on the Mount of Olives, which actually overlooks Jerusalem and the temple there. And as He was talking about these things, He was looking over that, and others were able to see what was before them as well, too. But Scripture tells us that uh, when Jesus comes back, that's where He actually will be coming to, as Zechariah chapter 14 talks about. But Mark chapter 13, verses 28 through 31, says, Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So Jesus tells, uh, tells us that when these events occur, people can take hope that Jesus' arrival is near. And that word generation might, might have caught your attention a little bit. That, that word generation here is, uh, is genea, which can also mean race. So the Jewish race will not pass away or be destroyed until Jesus returns. There's a lot of interpretation that you can take in this. And so if you take it that way, then you understand, oh, okay, well, that might be a sign to watch for. Again, don't get hung up on the signs. Be ready. And look how he finishes this. He says, my words will never pass away. We can count on God's word. God and his word provide the only stability in our unstable world. And it, it, it's sad to see how some people spend all their time and energy learning about this temporary world and accumulating all its possessions and such while neglecting the Bible and its eternal truths. We need to make sure we get grounded and, and know God's Word. I'm so thankful Mike is leading the group with this in discipleship and knowing God's Word more and, and, and what God's Word has for us and, and uh, figuring those things out. We need to be involved with that type of stuff and learning more and having, uh, having a deep understanding of God's Word. But, but the, uh, the next question, though, of course, is when? When? And in verses 32 through 37, we see this. No one knows, he says, about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, 
Keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. When Jesus said that uh, even he didn't know the time of the end, he was affirming his humanity. You look at that, you think, well, wait, Jesus knows it. He's a son of God. Yes, but he gave that up when he became human. He didn't have all those things and the abilities to, to do that in a way. Man and God, there's just the, the, those things. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to explain. But, of course, God the Father knows the time. And Jesus and the Father are one. Got that. Understand that. But when Jesus became a man, he voluntarily gave up the unlimited use of his divine attributes. He gave that up, the use of it. He could have come off that cross easily. He gave that up. And he's just like us, depending on God every day, no matter how terrible, and, and holding on until the Father says, now, now is the time. The emphasis here is not on Jesus' lack of knowledge, but rather on the fact that no one knows. It is God the Father's secret to be revealed when He wills it to be revealed. No one can predict by Scripture or by science the exact day of Jesus' return. Jesus is teaching that preparation, not calculation, is needed. Preparation, not calculation. So, some lessons to learn here from this chapter. The entire 13th chapter of Mark tells us how to live while we wait for Christ's return. But what are some lessons that we can learn out of this chapter? Well, one of the lessons I believe we can learn is watch out where we put our trust. Watch out where we put our trust. The first, that first lesson should reach home for us right there. To the Jews, the temple was the most important thing in the entire world. They were proud of the magnificence of its structures. They thought that, that because the temple represented God's presence in their midst, that they were the most favored of all peoples. They saw it as the mark of God's blessing on their existence. Within about 35 years of Jesus' predicting, uh, prediction concerning its destruction, the temple was nothing but a pile of rubble. And the, one, and the once great structure was, was just totally demolished. And God's judgment came upon the temple because the majority of the Jewish people rejected Jesus as the Messiah. The warning is for us that we need to be careful as well. We can put our trust in our church attendance. Look how many people are here today. This is great. Wow. We can put our trust in our heritage. My grandmother was a pastor or my grandfather's uncle's brothers was the, was the elder at the church. We can look back and say we have a strong Christian heritage coming through. We can also put our trust in our goodness. Hey, I, 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 did, uh, I did about three good deeds today. I think I'm good for the day. And I, you know, I got a few more to do for the week, so I'll catch up with that later. But yeah, we can put our trust in all that. None of that matters, though. What matters is what we have done with Jesus. What, what did you do with Jesus? Receive Him as your Savior? Awesome. What else? Because <laughs> sometimes what people do is they take Jesus as their Savior just for fire insurance to keep him out of hell. That's not the only reason. <laughs> we need to have Jesus as our Savior so that we also, too, yes, go to heaven, 
but that we can be led by Him, to be used by Him, to let other people know what God has done for them too. We need to let people know about Jesus' gift of eternal life given to them. Another lesson we can learn out of this, avoid setting times and dates for Jesus' return. <laughs> when you look at that and you see those things happening, eh, just go, okay, we'll see, we'll see. People have been trying to predict the time of the end of the age since Jesus ascended to heaven. <laughs> Hippolytus, who, who died in 236, predicted that the, that the 500th year after Christ would see the end of the world. A Spanish monk named uh, Beatus predicted that he would live to see the Antichrist in the end of the world by the year 800. He died in 798, <laughs> and of course the world is still here. In the 900s, it was a widespread belief across Europe that the end of the world would occur in the year 1000. I get it. I can understand that. But after the year 1000 passed, uneventfully, the year 1033 was targeted by several as the end, uh, time of the end. You probably can get a little idea of why. In 1843 and 44, William Miller and his followers were looking for Jesus' return. In 1910, many Christians expected that Halley's Comet would destroy the world. The year 1914 was proclaimed by the Jehovah's Witnesses as the time when the Battle of Armageddon would be fought. The February 1967 issue of Plain Truth magazine carried Herbert W. Armstrong's pronouncement that the day of the eternal would come between five and ten years from his prediction. That would be between 1972 and 1977. A few years later, Based on the first edition of Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth, tens of thousands of people sincerely believed the rapture would occur by the end of 1981. And, of course, I already mentioned, too, in 1988, Edgar uh, Weisnant mailed out a book to millions of preachers that said the, that the rapture would take place somewhere between September 11th and, and 13th of that same year of 1988. And, again, he modified the book for 1989. <laughs> Of course, we all remember the hype concerning the year 2000, right? Y2K, look out, here comes Jesus, be ready. And the, uh, and the end of the world's coming. Then the emphasis was on the year 2012 based on the Mayan calendar. Church historian David Kyle has written a book called The Last Days Are Here Again. <laughs> Listen to his conclusion on the, on the matter. He says, through 2,000 years of Western history, millions of people have believed that they were living in the last days. That has not changed. <laughs> Many sincere, devout, and knowledgeable people have seen the end as imminent, but they have all been wrong. Jesus tells us that no one knows when the end of time will be. How do we expect to figure it out when God has intentionally made it unknowable? From our very text today, Jesus was warning us not to waste our time trying to figure it out. Be ready. Be ready. A third lesson we can get out of this, God is in control. <laughs> God is in control. Lots of bad things are going to happen. Yes, this world is not going to get better. It's going to get worse. There are going to be bad things happening. There are going to be persecutions, natural disasters, personal sufferings. The Bible tells us that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So he's, no, he's not a respecter of persons. Everyone's going to be affected. The simple lesson is that we can rely on God no matter what we're going through, no matter what is happening in the world, 
no matter how bad things seem, God is moving everything toward completion and fulfillment. When we stand in front of people who demand that we give an account of our faith, God will be there for us. The Holy Spirit will be our comfort. He will be our guide. When the going gets tough, God may, may not make things easy, but He will give us the strength and encouragement to keep on going. He will be there for us to do that. And then a fourth and final lesson we can learn out of this is that we should always be prepared for Jesus to come again. If you had not gotten that message yet, <laughs> we need to be prepared. Always be prepared. Jesus says in a parallel passage in Matthew 24, He says, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. There's a story about a family who was discussing their preacher's sermon over the noon meal one Sunday. The sermon was about Jesus' second coming. Teenage son said that he still had lots of questions about Christ's return. The father tried his best to answer his son's questions, but he finally said, we just don't have all the answers we might like, but we do have all we need to know. The best preparation is simply to live each day as if it were your last. And to that, the son said, I tried that once and you granted me for a month. One of the great promises of the Bible is found in John chapter 14, the first three verses. They were read. We read those on Friday during Jane's memorial service, funeral service. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Keep those three verses in mind when you're going through difficult times. But there's a danger involved with that promise. We can be so heavenly minded that we end up being no earthly good. We're just looking for Jesus to return and then we're going to go to heaven. We're good. We're ready to go. What about those around you? Are they ready to go? What about the, your neighbors, your work associates? Are they ready to go? We need to be ready. We need to also, too, you know, we can get so wrapped up in figuring out when Jesus is coming back and the timeline concerning His coming that we lose focus on what God wants us to do here right now. As I've mentioned many times before, heaven is, is waiting for us. We've got a place in heaven. We have hope. Until then... Keep on going until then, until we get to heaven. You need, you need to, in the meantime, be used by God. Instead of living in the future, God wants us to live our lives in the now. We should be anxiously awaiting and eagerly anticipating Christ's return. But Jesus warns us that He has left us here with a purpose to accomplish. When He returns, He wants to find that we've been faithful to his cause. John Wesley was working in his garden one day when a neighbor came by to visit, and the neighbor attempted to jolt Wesley by asking this question, what would you be doing now, John, if you knew for certain Jesus would return today? Wesley jolted his neighbor instead by replying, I would go right on doing what I'm doing. <laughs> and that's what we should be doing. 
May we live in such a way that Christ could return at any time and we would be comfortable continuing the task at hand. Not trying to get everything fixed up because, oh, Jesus is coming. We don't know. We don't know when that's going to happen. We know it is going to happen. Are you ready? Are we there yet? Almost. Almost. Just be ready. That's your concern. We're going to have the worship team come on up. They're going to lead us in the last few songs. This first song, I trust that will be a praise for you, just uh, reminding you of who Jesus is in your life and the worship He should have from your lips. And if the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you in some way through this message to uh, tap you on the shoulder saying, yeah, you know what? Don't be so concerned about the things around you. Be concerned about your relationship with me. And if you need to maybe get some things right, we talked about the recommitments of, uh, in, in Sunday school class, you, you can recommit yourself to God. Maybe it's, it's, it's um, getting yourself back on course. Maybe it's refocusing yourself to what is, what is important. We need to prioritize. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus no matter what's going on around us. Because that relationship with Him is so important. So if you feel like the Holy Spirit's tapping, on, tapping you on the shoulder about something, and uh, I trust that you will act in obedience and spend some time in prayer with God. But as we, as we sing this song, I trust we can also, too, praise the Lord with our hearts and uh, give Him all our praise that is due Him.